0: The college experience is problematic in America. Why? Well, students and their families are frequently going into debt to pay exorbitant tuition rates for an experience that is supposed to prepare them for the workplace. Yet for many, it's a system that's getting increasingly out of touch. How do you do what you want to do when it seems like only a few career options are viable? Well, that's an especially big conversation from where I'm currently attending college, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. We're an old and traditional university as obsessed with Thomas Jefferson founding us as we are with all things preppy. So some might say there's not much room for being different here, but I don't think that's entirely the case. I'm Max Patton, and as a UVA student, I want to tell a different narrative that I see emerging with some students here. I want to tell the stories of alumni and students and graduates here at the University of Virginia who aren't following the path you'd expect. Welcome, this is Whose Shoulders, a podcast that, true to its rhetorical name, it's going to start to ask whose shoulders these innovative students are standing on. Because while legacy and tradition may be a big part of UVA, they don't have to define everyone who goes here. Let's talk about the people who are changing their future. Today, I'm happy to talk to Allison Mui, who leads Public Relations for New Victory, which is New York's only nonprofit family-focused community theater. She's also had a bunch of experience doing crisis communications. She double majored in Media Studies and East Asian Studies from UVA for the class of 2005. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Allison Mui of New Victory. Uh, and can you just explain uh, what you do in your own words?
1: Sure. Uh, the New Victory Theater is a theater that is solely dedicated to kids and families. So all the shows on our stage are for kids as little as babies and um, adults as
0: well. And you do public relations for them, right?
1: I do, yes. So I'm the director of PR there. And so it's my job to um, try to get stories about our venue and the programs that we run and also get critics in the door to review our shows. Okay, so The New Victory is owned by an arts nonprofit called The New 42. And it was um, the organization that revitalized 42nd Street. So from the se- in the 70s and 80s, most of the historic theaters on 42nd Street had turned into triple uh, X theaters, or or they ran uh, like D-list movies. So, you know, so the polar
0: um, opposite of what you're doing.
1: <laughs> totally. And so that was actually so if I really go from from beginning to end, um, the new 42nd Street was created by the city and state, we were given all the historic theaters and asked to find new uses for them. But in a sort of defiant move to show that Uh, New Yorkers and even New York families could once again be welcome on 42nd street. We create, we turned the worst of those theaters, the victory, um, which was actually the only theater that was solely dedicated to triple X porn, which, uh, you know, I'm not a porn aficionado, but it was just the worst of the worst and they ran constantly. And so um, people were like squatting there. There was, there were, You know, from what I've heard of the stories, like people would walk in there and find used needles and it was just a really gross place. Um, So they took that (laughs) worst theater on the block and created New York City's first theater for kids and families. And so it was a really bold move and and a way to kind of overturn the street. And then. The leadership of our organization actually gave Michael Eisner the tour of the Amsterdam theater and convinced him to uh, renovate that theater into the new Amsterdam, um, which, you know, was such a big deal and um, obviously really changed the whole neighborhood. So.
0: Yeah. And I think the mission yeah. these theaters are doing is also something kind of great to see in a city where, you know, you don't always think of it as being a family friendly environment by nature, like you just said, but yeah, uh, yeah. new victory <laughs> previously being triple X porn. Um, Yeah. But I guess on the topic of family and kids and growing up, let's rewind back and just um, start with you growing up. What did you Uh think you were going to do?
1: I had no idea. So, you know, all through high school and even into college, I just did a lot of generic leadership things, right? It's Like, oh, you're in student government or um, at Virginia, I was on the guide service. And so it was all sort of I didn't have a real clear idea of where I would end up and so I don't know that I could even tell you what that would be.
0: <laughs> but you were definitely like an you you were doing well like academically and just in school.
1: Yeah, I was doing okay. I wasn't the best student. I I kind of yeah, I always did just enough. I felt like I understood. You know, I was like a B student and even even at Virginia, I don't I didn't get the best grades, but I I knew that I could excel at you know, all the extracurriculars. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do that and, and have grades that are decent enough. And if I get the right test scores, I'll land somewhere, you know, decent. And, and I, I think I kind of lucked out. I'm glad I got it to UBA.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah. all the A students is to say, by the way. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, <yes. laughs>
1: no, but I really, my, hus- my husband was a salutatorian at his high school and and so when we talk about our grades, he was like, what? How did you even get it? He, he's a, a UVA alum also. So,
0: But yeah, but you were definitely, I mean, you were participating in like a lot of clubs and like you just mentioned the uh, leadership stuff as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I was like, something, something ought to work for me.
0: <laughs> You're uh, from a Chinese American background. So mm-hmm. like, how did that factor in just, you know, when you were growing up, just childhood, going to college? I don't, know if there's, I don't know if there's anything to distinguish from that, but obviously, you know, not everyone yeah. has that background. So how did that, I mean, did you ever think about that?
1: I, well, I did, and I, I'm laughing about it now because I'm thinking, well, that's probably why I thought my grades were so bad because I feel like among my Chinese friends, they were all getting straight A's, it, feel, it feels like. Um, because, you know, um, just to generalize, I think Chinese parents really focus on academics because that's why we're here. And that's why they work so hard and often, as my parents did, work two or three jobs so that we'd be in a great school system and, and have lots of opportunities for us. And so um, wasting that opportunity is unfathomable. So, you know, I think all of us were driven to really work hard. I think some of us felt pressured to go into um I don't know, like top tier jobs, you know, everybody has to be a doctor mm-hmm. or lawyer or, you know, for those of us who are a little bit younger, you know, it, it was okay to go into consulting. And, and then even after that, if you could land a job at a big tech, you know, something that was like, all the jobs had to end up being pretty um, brand name. Lucrative. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, not even lucrative. It's almost, it's almost just, um almost notoriety over rare. a salary. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's like, okay, it's it's um, measurable. And so I think for a little while, my parents sort of struggled with like, what do you do? Where are you? What does that mean? You know, stuff. <laughs> um, but I, I, they've come around since then.
0: <laughs> yeah. For sure. And it's always kind of interesting to see, like, you know, not just with Asian parents. And I can speak as someone who, you know, has an Asian mom. But like, just <laughs> in general, you know, with parents, they uh, have I mean, you know, they want to they sh- make sure, you know, who's, who's paying your bills? <laughs> What's going on here? And w- what becomes the realm of acceptability, you know, broadens and changes over time, like you said, with, you know, tech jobs, like, in the, I'm sure, like, way back in the 60s and 70s, they'd be like, what are you doing building computers in your garage? And then, like, nowadays, oh, yeah, yeah. land that startup gig.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think, I think it really stems from worry. You know, I, I have two kids. Now and it's just you always want not that you want their life to be easy you just don't want them to deal with hardships and so you especially when they're young as mine are you you're trained to think for them in so many ways and I can imagine that that gets harder to let go as they get older I hope I I hope I managed to do that but I guess we'll see
0: (laughs) right but you didn't feel like too much of that pressure like through high school at all I feel like. I was already sort of
1: setting my own path in that I was doing a lot of performing arts, doing a lot of theater, which was already non-traditional. And I just kind of knew for myself, well, I'm not going to end up, you know, being a doctor. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do law because that's can be theatrical if you're, you know, a litigator or something, but it just, and because I wasn't, focused on academics to a degree that some of my um, Chinese friends were or I don't know I never truly followed the rules you know a lot of a lot of my Chinese friends who did really well um, by their parents standards were also you know playing practicing their instruments for an hour or two a day and I just wouldn't do it I, I there's a part of me that was just very stubborn and so I was kind of Always thinking, well, I'm going to do what I want to do, and so I just didn't feel that pressure, and I, and I never kind of set myself up for that because I was never really following
0: along. Doing your own thing with theater, like, where do you think that came uh-huh. from? Like wanting to be with the theater kids and like, and, and to be in that group.
1: Yeah, I, it it happened by accident. The, the irony is that I um, got into our county's math and science school, and because of the way. That the the busing worked. I mean, not you know, not busing is a, is a term like you know Kamala Harris mentioning it at the debates last week. But because of the way that busing worked for the mass side kids to go back to their um, districted neighborhoods, we were sort of you you had to do you had to stay at the school in the after school hours. I think I kind of wandered into an audition at one point and. Because I didn't know how to prepare a monologue, I created a character and made something up. And then the theater teacher said, "Well, where did you get that from?" And I said, oh, "I made it up." And then she was like, "Well, that's great." And so then she turned me on to oratory and forensics. It, for people who used to do debate or or um, forensics out there, I, I got into that. And then she sort of introduced me more to Traditional theater, too. It was like, okay, well, you know, I had asked for a monologue, and, you know, you could find that by reading these books. And then I started reading plays, and then I started just paying more attention to theater, and then just really fell in love with it. And now that I'm talking about it, I guess my parents really, I think they always really loved um, movie musicals. I think as they were learning English, they could really appreciate movie musicals because of the songs. And, mm-hmm. and if you think about how musicals are told, they are somewhat broad, or they were traditionally. And so I think they were easy for them to understand as they improved their English. And, and of course, now they're very fluent. I, you know, if you talk to my mother, you wouldn't even know that she was Asian. But it's just, as we were growing up, they always um, showed those things to us. And so there was a lot of just, connecting the dots, I think, in high school. Like, oh, well, yeah, I could, you know, do that on stage also. And then I just, yeah, I got really involved with the theater kids and, and really felt like I found my tribe. And yeah, they were great people and so fun to be around. I remember sitting in my um, guidance counselor's office and and I was so focused on like the forensics and debate scene. I said, well, your colleges have something like that? And she's like, well, not really, but you could always start a club. And that's one of the great things about UVA is that all of their activities are student run. And so if you wanted to create something, you could. And so that was really attracted to me. But at the time, I really thought I might even pursue uh, theater arts. I was I was looking at NYU and Carnegie Mellon and, and other schools that had great theater programs. in Virginia was not on my list, but then I ended up there because it's just more affordable. And that was it. I kind of had, I just fought with my parents about it. And they, was like, they were just saying, well, if you want us to help you with your tuition, then you have to go to Virginia. And was, yeah, all right. And so I kind of resented it at first, but then once I got there, I, I really got my place and and I'm so glad that I went there
0: in the end do you realize that there were other people who were, you know, like organizing debate or drama or theater productions as well?
1: Well, I let go of that pretty quickly because a, a high school friend of mine, he found out about, he saw, I think, a like a poster or something, a flyer for the Weathermen and said, hey, Mui, you should you should um, audition for this. I feel like
0: you would do really well. And that's a comedy improv group, right?
1: Yeah. And so it's um, UVA's improv comedy group. and. And I said, well, "What do you have to do?" And he's like, "Well, I guess you don't have to do anything." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, that's true." So I just went, and it was so much fun because maybe this is why I didn't do well academically—is I, I just was really lazy and, and better about it now as an adult. That would just always procrastinate and not prepare. And so this audition was like a dream scenario for me because you could just walk in blind, and that was to your advantage so, and so that was really fun um and it didn't even feel like an audition like they just ran us through a bunch of scenarios and you just had to go with it and and I had such a good time and then I got in and it was, it was that was surprising and then it was like okay well let's see what this is about
0: and the weatherman that wasn't just like a i don't know what the proper term for this is but you know like a first year stint like that was a thing you did kind of like yeah
1: college. that's right i um it was really neat because i was the only person in my class who got into the weatherman and so i then found myself hanging out with you know second year third years and fourth years and i just felt so cool in yeah your,
0: like li- literally in your year
1: yeah in my wow. year yeah well first all weathermen were small so for the whole school they were only at the time that I was in it, like it just wasn't a big group. So it sounds it sounds cool, but, it's like you know, they weren't taking that many people to begin with. Um, and there were some grad level kids in, in the Weathermen, too, like people who had just left, but some of them had stayed to do graduate work. And I guess they really weren't still on the team, but they were just around. And so as a first year, then I got to hang out with. You know, older students and I just that that was just neat, you know. And of course, I was still close to my dorm mates and everything. So I just felt like, oh, wow, I'm really experiencing different sides of UVA.
0: Yeah. And you can see people who have, you know, are more like just older and more mature than you and have kind of gone yeah. on their own paths already. I mean, I think having third and fourth year in normal terminology, junior and senior year friends is a really valuable asset in college. Very cool. And on the academic side, uh, you were doing uh, media studies, right?
1: Again, I wasn't the best student. Um, yes, <laughs> but I did I did media studies.
0: Yeah. And I loved it. It was great. And what drew you to that?
1: I remember really wanting to get into it. I remember like w- working really hard on that application. And I'm just very goal-oriented. And when I had read about the program, it just sounded cool. And it sounded the most current and or um and i think in some ways it sounded practical because you know it's like oh i i study history i study english and i'm like but what does that translate to and so when i looked at the media studies program i said oh well i could see myself having a job in media let's do media studies i mean it was very superficial thinking but um once i got into
0: it but it was like new back then too
1: it, it was, and it was brand new. Yeah. And, and so I also really like
0: that. Oh yeah. I was just saying like, you're the, um, you know, same, uh, class here as our last guest, uh, Kennedy, uh, class of 05. So I'm sure it was a very, like, it was pretty small and tight net back then as well. Like the, the whole media studies program.
1: I don't know if we were the second or third class. It was really small. And what was really cool about it is that we all, pursued different paths. Some some of the people who applied for media studies already knew what they wanted to do, whether that was, you know, film editing or I think we had an animator in our class. You know, there were some people who had very specific goals and just kind of saw UVA as a stepping stone towards like a a true professional track. Um, I think a lot of us though were just there because it was interesting and and because of the small group and thirdly, because you could create whatever path you wanted once you were in the program. It's similar to like the Gallatin program at NYU. It's like basically, as long as it's attached in some way to the realm of media, which is so broad, you could create whatever area of focus you wanted. And it, and it culminated in something akin to a thesis project, but it wasn't like you had to dedicate you know, two years to it, but you, you could work towards it, but you could really just go in whatever direction you wanted and you work with the college advisor and whether it was something really theoretical or really practical. And I actually remember writing my thesis project about the Christopher Guest movies. <laughs> if you guys are familiar, that's the he's the guy who did Spinal Tap, Invest in Show, and all of those sort of semi-improvised films. And so I I talked about how he you know, expanded on an existing art form and, and you I mean, really you could write about anything. Yeah, so it was I think we a lot of us were also attracted to the classroom structure. I mean it was very there were always really lively discussions. I think because it was only, you know, a dozen of us and I just remember like sitting in a circle and just, you know, debating ideas and it was very um
0: Socratic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was yeah, it's a really valuable experience. I'm just like now having all these flashbacks <laughs> things
0: that I've forgotten about. but um <laughs> that's that's the goal <laughs> well, and,
1: and and you're connecting people, Kennedy and I, you know, we get in touch every now and then but we we reconnected because you contacted both of us and and it was really fun catching up with her again. I feel like every few years we have like a deep dive into like, hey, how's it going? What are you up to and you moved and what's happening? you know so <laughs> thanks for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, no problem. That's 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 our that's our mission. <laughs> yeah. here, connecting people whose shoulders.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you also did a Mandarin uh, exchange, right? I did. So the um, the summer after my first year, I went to Shanghai. W- was it just like I might as well have like an international college experience, or was it kind of like well, what was that experience like? It was. It
1: was. Uh, my sister is about five years older than me, and she had recently gone to China to teach English, and you know, she just told me about her experience. And and I thought, oh, I, I should definitely make a point to study abroad while I'm at school. And um, I was studying Mandarin. And so I said, great, let's do this. And I had, I was really curious about going, even though my, my family is actually from like the Kowloon area or, or near Hong Kong, but I, I just really wanted to see China. And so it was it was fascinating because my only experience with Chinese people, of course, had been the Chinese American community, which really is a combination of Taiwanese people, of mainland Chinese people, of Cantonese people, and especially you know, when you grow up in Richmond, Virginia, it's not like the Asian community is huge, <laughs> and so so you're throwing yeah. a lot of different you know ethnic groups together and saying, well, at mm-hmm. least we're all Chinese, you know, <laughs> so yeah, we're yeah, and so
0: which happens to be like a giant landmass, exactly, yeah. yeah,
1: and so it was really exciting to be in Shanghai and and learn more about, oh, what a Chinese experience for Shanghainese people. And, and I used to love taking um, cabs in Shanghai. And in my very rudimentary Mandarin, you know, they would ask me, and like, oh, like, what do you think of the new president? Because, of course, at the time, you know, Bush had, seemed like a really controversial figure in, on the world stage. And so it was just kind of interesting to see to see the kind of questions that they had for, you know, my friends and I as, as Americans, like even when we went out just to go dancing or whatever, that they would look to us as like, Oh, here are the Westerners. Let's see how they move And can we imitate those moves? And, and they were really sort of um, very willingly, like trying to appropriate Western culture.
0: And that sounds like a fascinating time. Cause like, yeah, yeah, now it's so much more globalized Mm -hmm. and, modernized and uh, economically developed and also i mean this is kind of a negative but the international situation but you know the way that china is set up now and the way the u.s is set up now not the most friendly disposition right, not that it right. was back then like you said with but, but bush but i mean at the time i don't know it just seems like it was a little more innocent like yeah, there was a little yeah. a little less authoritarianism going on on both sides there
1: yeah but, and yeah and Anyway, it seemed as though the expat community was it was fairly small then, and of course now, I mean, there's whole neighborhoods, right? And so Shang, Shanghainese culture is is so robust now. I mean, I, I think when we when I was there, and I mean, obviously there there was a culture there, but it was just harder to discover, and now it's just more bold, right.
0: bold global yeah. kind of its own thing. Yeah. yeah. Wrapping up with UVA, actually, you were a lawn resident for your fourth year, right? Uh-huh. So what was that like? Because that's like that's such an iconic UVA thing—the image yeah. of you know being on the lawn.
1: No, yeah, I I loved living on the lawn. If you know, again, similar to how I felt in my first year, I just and, and to this day, I just love meeting interesting people, like whatever that may be. And you know, the thing that I value the most from living on the lawn was was not the prestige of it, but just the opportunity to really commune with so many passionate people. UVA isn't the biggest community, but yet somehow we still miss each other, right? It was really great to, you know, meet with people who had dedicated their entire experience to medicine or to engineering or or things that would just seem to be outside of my specific bubble and hear about their work and the amazing things that they're doing and and it never felt like we were comparing to each other, we were just bringing different things to the conversation. And, you know, a lot of people, we like a lot of us already knew each other and some didn't, or even if we did, we just continue to learn more about each other because you're right there all the time. And um, yeah. and it also, of course, you know, makes you appreciate the university as a whole, just to open your door each morning or, or leave it open at night and just see the school, like the, the day cycle of the school and, and students passing through and just being engaged with each other in really meaningful ways and being excited to be there. And that
0: was really a beautiful experience. Yeah. And what do you think was the kind of like perspective you brought? Was it like the improv experience? <laughs> what, what was the, What was the kind I'm of... just
1: always making jokes. No. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I just, I actually, I do remember some of my like going, like I remember, I just remember people asking me like, oh, are you going to this show? I, you know, I realize I've gone through four years. I have never seen a piece of theater here at UVA. And, you know, we weren't the strongest drama school, you know, and, and I think a lot of the theater department kind of kept to themselves as, as it happens at a lot of schools. And so I would take some of my you know, lawn friends or guide service friends to shows and, and, you know, they would just be amazed like, oh, has this been here the whole time? I'm like, yeah. And there's, you know, there's shows in a black box theater. It's not just the main stage. There's plenty of things to see, but I wasn't the only one, you know, you know, my neighbor, Rebecca was like, you know, she sang opera for fun and Adam, a few doors down, played the cello beautifully. And so we were, it wasn't like I was the only arts person, but we were, Providing windows of like, well, did you know that there's this small concert happening in you know in the pavilion two doors down? Or there's actually an art exhibit over at the Visual Arts Center. I can't remember it now, but
0: the Fralin Museum. Or... No,
1: that's not that's not familiar to me. I think it was a different. There's an annex. At the, like by the time I graduated, I think they were building something, and so it was like in a like a really nice trailer, really <laughs> like not a trailer, but like a. It was like a temporary. <laughs> Building, Portable. But, yeah, building. while they were constructing, yeah. I guess what you just said, but uh, you know, this is it wasn't just me that was what I'm saying. Is you know, yes, I I think I helped provide some insight to the arts, and I don't actually know what I brought to that
0: group. Like, I think I kind of lucked out. Well, I think you just said it.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe.
0: I I'm just thinking like of all the sub communities UVA has because it is a really interesting. I don't know, dynamic, or you have a state school, but it's not really that big of a state school, right? Right. And then within that sort of not really big state school, there's a lot of even smaller communities, and you can totally, you know, spend your four years and have most of them not be anywhere on your radar. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of be, you know, be the, whether you're the person spreading that uh, to other people, or you're receiving it, I think that's kind of a really cool way to experience college just beyond classrooms and lectures
1: yeah it's interesting for for some of us who were in any sort of performative thing it felt like we were already public facing to a degree like if you were in an acapella group or in you know theater there was a different kind of recognition whereas you know some of my good friends who you know they were they were architecture students who were mostly in the architecture building and and might not have had that visibility. We're bringing just as much meaningful work and experiences to conversations. And,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially architecture students. Those guys, they have it rough.
1: Yeah, they have like their own <laughs> mini campus, and they're just heads down and they don't working. see the light of day <laughs> right, too <exactly>. often. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my one of my college roommates was an architecture student, and I used to just do work and study there because it was such an interesting atmosphere to be in. Because it is so intelligent, but also so creative and so um, just so tactile. I mean, I feel like especially at a liberal um, art school like UVA, you don't see that much, you know, tactile work (laughs) being done. And so it was really cool just to be in a place where you could see something develop from beginning to end, you know, like glance at that model on that table there. And then suddenly it's this building, you know. (laughs) And so that
0: was Instead of like a stack of thesis papers. Right, exactly, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And so when it came to graduating and then your kind of, you know, first steps into mm -hmm. the professional world, what did that look like?
1: Um, So I was, I think the the Asian parents side of me, was like, I have to have a job before I graduate. Like I'll be mortified if I don't have a job, you know, that I've done done all this for nothing if I don't have a job. So uh, I applied to... A real breadth of communications jobs. So I guess I I had somewhat narrowed it down, but I was looking at advertising and public relations and some other, like, you know, somewhat related opportunities. And I got a job with a PR firm who I just, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, it's a PR firm. I'm going to apply. I don't really care what kind of PR they do. And it turned out they focused on crisis communications. And one of their Biggest clients at the time was AOL. Even though I had hoped to end up in New York, I ended up in Dulles um, because they had their main headquarters there. Uh, but when I showed up for work, you know, then I kind of really understood the lay of the land and realized that we were kind of helping them sort of uh, navigate the end of their company as as it was. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, because usually if you're doing crisis communications, things aren't. Great. Of
1: course, you're coming in at the end. Yeah, but it, it was I, I when they when I had applied, it wasn't um, explicit what kind of communicate uh, what kind of PR it was, and and of course, as I learned, the whole point of of our clientele was to be as discreet as possible. So, you know, for other PR friends of mine who ended up at larger firms, you know, whether it was like Ogilvy or Edelman or. Rubenstein or whatever they they were just like what is the name of the firm again and they hadn't heard of it <laughs> and it's like well I'm not really supposed to hear of us you know
0: like I'm thinking of that um story a few weeks ago with like Facebook's crisis communications and like
2: mm-hmm.
0: I don't know I, think, I I feel like people just tend to look on that stuff is pretty seedy if they're not in the industry they're like if we're hearing about you something's gone wrong <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Which is a yeah. tough job. Like, that's a tough job by definition, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and and some things were just very basic. It was mergers and acquisitions. It wasn't, like, necessarily, um, well, it, you know, like, real crises of, um, you know. But just high pressure
0: situations. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, but sometimes yeah. there were. And so it wasn't the happiest environment to be in. Interestingly enough, a lot of the, um, at the senior level, a lot of the folks who were heading teams were previously from politics. And it completely makes sense because if you're just tired of the campaign trail, go into crisis and it, it absolutely makes sense, but it was not, it was, I don't know. When I first joined the firm, I was like, ah, of course. (laughs) And so that was (laughs) neat just to, you know, meet those people.
0: And this may sound like it totally doesn't fit, but I don't know, maybe it does, but is there any sort of like inkling of getting to use that like the kind of mindset required for improv where you kind of have to think fast and adapt?
1: Yeah, well, I, it, it was interesting that at the firm, I found myself getting reassigned several times. And they were always with the, you know, the war room scenarios. So it's usually at the beginning or very end of um, onboarding us uh, uh, for crisis comm, you know, they set up a war room to kind of um, anticipate what the various scenarios would be and how we would address each scenario. And they're very fast-paced environments. And I, I think I got those stations because I could think quickly and stay calm and just a- execute the task immediate to me. Some of my friends who were at the firm were, you know, stronger writers, and they would be in the office like working on bigger reports on things. So, yeah. And so it was just, I just found myself kind of in the war room scenario a lot and, and I kind of connected the dots of like, Oh, Hey, okay, I guess all that, you know, fast thinking has paid off.
0: And it sounds like, you know, obviously you've moved on since then. What kind of led you to um, pursue new pastures?
1: You know, I'll always value working at a firm, for teaching me a lot about different industry groups very quickly and also giving me lots of opportunities to learn about all the various materials, like media materials that are developed in the PR world. I mean, very quickly, I learned how to write press releases and PSAs and um, just memos, you know, and, and talking points and whatever, because you just had to turn them out so quickly. But I think what I struggled with was, one, because we were brought on for crisis, I often didn't stand behind the work that we were representing um, or like to be on, um, you know, the bad side or, or whatever it is, especially if it, if something's like ethically compromised. And I also the the hours are intense, I guess, because of the war room scenario. Those are often really late hours of the night. And so it was just really long hours, you know ruling work that i didn't stand behind um and then the other thing about being at a firm and then in crisis especially is that you are brought in for a moment in time and so you don't you don't get to be on one narrative arc from beginning to end and i yeah. sort of just discovered for myself that that is important to me and that i do care about the mission of a place and and all of those
0: kinds of mm-hmm. things and
1: I had really let go of doing anything um, theater related as a profession because I'm just too stability seeking.
0: So you were kind of split between the more corporate world and the more yeah, I guess the and like the more creative drama world.
1: Yeah, and um, yeah, and I so I actually so I I put myself through a series of informational interviews and tried to meet with a bunch of people, and one of the persons that I met was at the New Forty Second Street slash New Victory. And thankfully I had my resume printed out and in, in some samples with me, but I, I really truly did just meet with him to learn more about um, arts administration. And at the end of our conversation, I let him know, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in this and if any opportunities come up, please let me know. And he said, well, you know, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I am looking, um, but you'll have to take a, a pay cut and a title cut because I'm I'm looking for an entry level position. But if you want it, then it's yours. And so I was like, oh, great, because you know, in New York City is expensive and it's tough. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I really, I really believed in the mission of bringing kids to the arts and the arts to kids. And so, like a week later, I called him back and I said, all right, you know, let's do it. And so I, I've been there ever since. I've been there forever. I'm now going into my thirteenth season. I want to say.
0: And what's that like? I mean, New Victory, the mission—like you kind of outlined at the very beginning of this um, Mm -hmm. show—it's more family-oriented and stuff. But what what draws you to that—the kind of theater environment, the fact that it just is theater, the fact that it's also doing something different in New York—like what's what's? I mean, it's really great, Mm -hmm. but like, what makes it so cool for you?
1: Well, one, I still feel the magic of theater when i sit as an audience member even though i've been in it even though i go to shows all the time i still think it's magical and and then when you can witness that on a child's face you know when you when you know it's their first theater experience it's really something special and i think because it's changed my life i i'm just i feel like i'm witnessing something like oh this is going to change your life you know? <laughs> um <laughs> and uh, i just i can I can even remember, you know, as an elementary school kid, you know, my first theater experience, just like a local community group. And they did one scene change. And I just kept thinking, well, how did they take us from the outside of the house into the inside of the house? And in hindsight, it's like a very basic stage magic trick. Right. But, but just that sort of wonder, I, I, I can't forget it. And that's actually a key interview question we ask anyone who comes to interview at our organization because we need to know that they believe that that theater and the performing arts are transformative and you know they right. certainly have been for me so, and
0: you get to see the impact of it on people who are you know discovering it for the first time is just as discovering the world for the first time
1: you said it really well because the shows on our stage are actually from around the world so you know we created a theater for kids and families at a time when they there weren't many of them in the nation. And so instead of trying to always produce work, um, because a lot of performers, especially New York-based artists, you know, when they dream of making it in New York, they're not thinking of kid audiences. And so we, our programming department, our artistic department, travels around the world and finds shows from everywhere, whether it's a circus from Africa or jugglers from Korea or whatever. And bring them to our stage. And they're with us for two to four weeks at a time. And we do about 15 shows in a season. And then we have a summer series that focuses specifically on New York-based dance. And so year round, we're just always bringing in artists from around the world. And, um, And in my position, I get to talk with them and And that artist side of me just loves those conversations because, you know, I'm I'm digging into, well, what was your intent in creating this piece? What do you hope the children walk away with? Was this show even created for kids? Digging into those ideas are things that I'm really drawn to and then sort of translating it to the consumer audience is a lot of fun. And yeah, I just feel really lucky
0: yeah and it's like taking advantage of you know the vibrant really like diverse aspect of a city but presenting it in a way that kids can partake in because usually like like we've kind of gone over that stuff is reserved for adults just for various reasons but this kind of is an opportunity to bring it to a totally different demographic
1: oh absolutely one of our one of our um mission statements is also to reflect the city we call home i mean Yeah, as you said, New York is so dynamic and so diverse. And so that really pushes us as far as, you know, telling really different stories so that the kids see themselves on stage. But we are also actually, we recognize that, well, we can't just present international work because the American experience is so specific. And so we created a new work development program called New Victory Lab Works artists who create work for adults or all ages is through this sort of residency program, you know, they challenge themselves to create work for kids. And so we've had artists as renowned as, you know, Taylor Mack in our program or Fiasco Theater. We even had Howie D from the Backstreet Boys (laughs) do a work in our program. You know, it's just,
2: it's
1: (laughs) any, it's any artist who is who has never presented for family audiences and, and we kind yeah. of will will approach them and say look you know your work is really accessible and interesting and you're telling an important story so you know join this residency program we'll give you the support and space you need and it's a really it's a really amazing program because if you talk to other theater organizations a lot of time their residency programs demand that at the is or make it conditional that at the end of their residency they are to present you know a a certain draft of the script or a certain there are markers for success in that program, but we leave ours intentionally very open. So artists may come in and all they figured out is, Oh, I, I want to try this with puppets. And like, that's all they did with their time there. Then we still consider that valuable because we're just trying to allow the artist to be as creative as possible to create their very best work. So, but anyway, we have, I don't want to go into all of our programs, but we have a lot of different programs. That at the end of the day are really asking ourselves, you know, what else do kids need and what is it important to show them? And we try to keep, you know, our ears open to to all of those things all the time. And and that is really, I think, changing quickly these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And do you think about it differently, too, now that from the sounds of it, we were just dealing with your kids uh, before we started recording, which, uh, by the way, thank you for doing this on a tight and schedule. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Thank you yeah. for, again. The tight, It's a tight schedule. But uh, having a family, has that kind of mm-hmm. made you appreciate the work you're doing also in a new way?
1: It does. I mean, you know, I as I said, I love seeing kids experience theater for the first time and then seeing it with your own kids is really special. And I'm also learning about the slow burn of it you know my, i i took my 3 year old to a show like two or three months ago um and it was a a show from france where puppeteers manipulated a large like the rope you would find on a ship and they manipulated it into different shapes and created characters and it was wordless because the company is from france and, and so they instead of trying to do english it was it was basically wordless with music just last week he said Mommy, the string show at your theater was very beautiful because it wasn't too loud. It was just a little loud and a little quiet. <laughs> and I said, oh, <laughs> thank you, Henry. I'm glad you really like it. And he continues to bring it up randomly, but it's, it's you know, two months after the fact that we went to go see that show. And it's really amazing to know that it's resonated with him and that he's continuing to think about it. And so that really excites me. Um, and it, it, it also... Mm-hmm helps me realize, you know, that the impact that we have on kids may not be immediate and helping me understand that space a little differently. Huge appreciation, respect for the, um, our education department where they're, you know, we have uh, really two departments who focused on how to engage with schools in New York City and how to engage with families. And so we have a lot of um, pre and post show arts activities that are available for free to families who come to the theater so that they can, you know, together as a family engage with the performing arts and understand that it's, it's more accessible than they realize. Um, and we do the same mm-hmm. in schools. And so it's just, you know, really seeing their work, you know, happen with my kids, is, you know, I appreciate them that much
0: more. And when it comes to the performances, the stage work, like theater, all of that, What do you, what do you think is the broader impact it's having on, um, you know, with New Victory, with the audiences of families and kids, like not all of them are going to be drawn to theater and acting. Like if some of them are, that's great, but not all of them are like, what do you think? And I guess this just gets at a really general question. Like, what do you think is the value of theater for, you know, society like today as entertainment, as education, like how is it helping these minds?
1: Yeah. I mean, we really believe that performing arts are raising global citizens. We actually just completed research that, you know, one of the first of its kind that measures the in, the intrinsic impact of performing arts. I think so many existing studies are, you know, does theater help improve test scores? Does theater improve school attendance? But I think for most of us in the field, if we look at each other we don't say, "Oh, I got into the performing arts because it improved my test scores." Like we got into it because it makes us feel amazing, and so trying to capture what that is, we conducted a study about that, and I won't go into it. I'll just speak for myself. I, I really do believe that that the arts help not just kids, but people understand each other more, right? I mean, it engenders empathy. Yeah. It, it um, helps us see worlds of possibilities. And I think for a lot of groups, including kids, it can help them project for their future differently, right? Like now that I know that all kinds of things are possible, what is possible for me? I'm talking around it a little bit because it's under peer review. So I don't want to say anything that's conclusive and until it's true, but, but, you know, some of our evidence suggests that. And I think that just sort of echoes what a lot of us who work in the business sort of know
0: <laughs> in the souls of us. I can tell you do PR. No. <laughs> yeah. that was no that was a, yeah. that was a great way to put it. And like I yeah. do definitely I do think mean it though. I don't <laughs> No, no, I, I can think, tell. I, yeah. I didn't mean to <laughs> just had a good way of putting it too. I
1: <laughs> I know. It's funny, I, I know, but I think sometimes when people think of PR, they're like,
0: oh, those people are so sneaky yeah but like i feel like you'd have to be the most cynical person in the world to right. think what you're doing is like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. is like
1: Ugh, creativity and children no thank
2: you <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i mean it's an easy thing to sell but the way you sell it too i think also like really puts it in perspective because like well. you know not every not everyone does get get it right away like
1: right, you right, know, right
0: what are my what's the point of this but what's
1: the point well and it, i think i think sometimes it just seems like a lot of work you know like I, I I have to push myself to say like no we're gonna we're gonna make the trip to see the show. Usually the performing arts are at a city center, and so for so many families that means a trip of some sort. And you're trying to time everything so well. Like, can we get in time to eat? Can we fit in a nap? Can we still make it to the show without a meltdown? You know, I I get it. But to any of the parents who are listening, like just go for it. It's worth it, even if it's just. Once on the holidays every year, go to the Nutcracker. You know whatever it is,
0: um, yeah. I do
1: think it's it's valuable just as an alternative to movies and <laughs> other things.
0: Yeah, right. We're like in an age of like you know people worrying about kids always being on like smartphones or iPads or whatever, mm-hmm. and like empathy being lost skill. You know, theater and I guess like tangible things in that way really do matter, and and also from the perspective of like. Not everyone's like traditionally, like kids wanted to have these kinds of experiences, their parents would have to be, you know, first of all, really educated, really committed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, you know, take them to the Kennedy Center or somewhere like, you know, hope that you know, you, you're in some really like, great family friendly, but at the same time, cosmopolitan environment, I think with, you know, efforts to have local, but also international theater, you're able to bring that to more people, because Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of like, I don't know, that's the best thing you can do, because not everyone gets to have that experience.
1: Yeah, and I I agree with you that there's a real accessibility issue. But I'll also say that the performing arts don't have to be uh, a heightened or glossy experience. I mean, you know, take them to uh, just dancing in the square, like anything that's even folk arts related or, you know, think of how about how much modern dance has been grown from social dance from Latin American social dance or black dances you know traditional dance forms that have now been elevated mm-hmm. to a big stage i mean i think just seeing people commune together and participate in the arts in some way if it's a cultural you know performance like that's just as valuable i think it's about training kids to be open to new stories you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it it's just yeah that that they don't only come from the adults in your life or only come from the screens in your house right
0: and i imagine like the kind of productions new victory is putting on would probably be more interesting to a lot of kids than like than like wagner wagner's plays. like there's there's just like i mean (laughs) the ring cycle for kids you know (laughs) right yeah (laughs) instead of six hours it's four hours right (laughs) you know every culture every generation every kind of Every audience needs its own mm-hmm. theater. So it's great to see more theater in general yeah, because that's yeah, a yeah. bigger audience. I think that's a good place to um, wrap it up. But thank you so much for coming on. Sure. I guess twice been, now because uh, yeah. <laughs> we did have to redo this. But I really appreciate you coming on again. And um, this has been great.
1: No, it was it's really nice. And I, I'm really excited by what you're doing. And I, I can't wait to hear more about what our colleagues are up to.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Allison for the interview. She actually did this interview once more because we had technical difficulties the first time, so a double thanks to her for being super patient with that. If you're curious about her work, we'll link New Victory in her Twitter profile below. This has been our fourth episode, so if you enjoyed the show, it'd be a huge deal if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded the show. You can also subscribe to us in whichever podcast app you prefer, whether that be Apple, Spotify, Google... Uh, whatever you want. Overcast is a great one if, um, if you're looking for new ones. Subscribe to us to keep getting future episodes and stories of innovative UVA students whose shoulders will return next month with another guest. Once more, you're awesome for listening. Enjoy July and we'll catch you again at the end of summer with our next episode in August. Stay safe. Thanks. Peace.